Greetings, dear listeners, and welcome to Real Skiers with Jackson Hogan. I am over the moon with delight to have as my guest today none other than Kristen Ulmer, artist, athlete, and author, among other accomplishments. Regarded by many as the greatest female athlete of the 1990s in any sport, not just skiing, Kristen parlayed her fame and recognition as a badass risk taker into a whole new career as a mindset sports coach focused on dealing with fear constructively. And if I didn't say that properly, I'm sure that Kristen will correct me later on. Throughout her life, she has been a new age artist who has left her stamp on Burning Man and elsewhere. I hope to touch on all of the many sides of the fabulous Kristen Ulmer in the next few minutes, which, given the life she's led, is a steep hill to climb. Kristen, thanks so much for taking the time to talk with me today, and welcome to Real Skiers with Jackson Hogan. Jackson, it's a pleasure. During my ski career, unquestionably, you are one of my favorite people from that those two decades in the business. So happy to be here. Oh, I'm, I'm, I'm blushing. <laughs> most of my dear listeners are probably most familiar with your well-documented skiing exploits, and rightfully so. So let's begin instead with Tristan Ulmer, the artist, which must in some way form the underlying fabric of what I'll call your philosophy, because you certainly have a way of looking at life. Now, you attended Burning Man religiously and not just as a visitor. Can you describe for my dear listeners when you first went to Burning Man and how you came to be part of the scene there? Yes, and it actually does tie into skiing. Uh, I'm writing two more books. One of them is about core values and specifically core values that we're born with. And my number one top of the list core value that I was born with came out of the womb screaming, right? is radical self-expression, which is the theme of Burning Man. And it's also what I was all about during my ski career. And so in 2003, I went to Burning Man for the first time. And I was still definitely a professional, full-time, big mountain, extreme skier. We called it extreme, it extreme back then. If anybody had asked me, like, what does it take to be a world-class athlete? I would say, Oh, well, radical self-expression, that's what it takes. But that was just unique to me. So then I go to Burning Man in 2003, and the theme, of course, is radical self-expression. And I realized that I could have this experience of radical self-expression in my life without having to risk my life. And just by being a part of this community and creating art eventually, but I didn't know it in 2003, I came home from Burning Man and five days later, I quit my ski career. And when I say quit, I mean, it was no small thing. I had four different monthly columns and four different ski magazines around the world. I was hosting my own television show. I had 12 sponsors that were paying me a salary. And I just came home and I'm like, I'm done. I quit everything. I stopped writing for the magazines. I stopped hosting the TV show. I ended my relationships with all my sponsors and just walked away. And my friends and family were freaking out. They're like, what are you doing? I'm like, nope, nope, this is what I need to do. And I haven't missed a year at Burning Man since 2003. I'm now divorced, but when I was married, my husband and I had an art fabrication studio just to create art for Burning Man. And I'm not so much the artist as I was the muse. I was the artist for the first project, which I created before I met my husband, my now ex-husband. My ski career was a big deal, but I would say the highlight of my life that tops that is my experience with Burning Man, which is saying a lot, to be honest. 
So it, Burning Man, if I might say so, was sort of a, a turning point in that you leave behind one career and it opens a door in some way to another, maybe not directly, but indirectly. Is that true? Yes. How it opened a door is it allowed me, because the, the higher states of consciousness and zone and flow and all those things we experience when we're a high level professional athlete, especially one that involves a lot of fear, like I was, you know, dealing with a lot of fear. It's hard to find a replacement for that. And Burning Man was that replacement. And it, it allowed me to walk away abruptly and very cleanly from my ski career and not look back and not miss it, which is really important. Now I forget your question, but... Uh, let, me, let, me, let me re-key it up for you, if I may. Yes. You mentioned flow, and I believe harmony is another key word for you. And certainly words that I associate very much with Burning Man. And by the way, they're words I use frequently in Snowbird Secrets, which is my little book that came out of Little Cottonwood Canyon. To me, Burning Man is so much more than an art fair on acid. Burning Man, to me, represents mankind trying to connect to spirit on humanistic terms without the usual mediation of a formal church. How does your involvement with Burning Man then affect your life outside of Black Rock City? How do you take Burning Man home, if you will? Well, because it's radical self-expression and I like live radical self-expression every day, or I, I wish that I could. It's just about, for me, being authentically myself, my core values ties in with the core values of that event. I haven't missed my ski career at all, which, you know, is interesting. And I, in many ways, don't even miss skiing. And I, I know people find that offensive because skiing means so much to them. Like recently I was, um, as I'm single now, you know, all these skiers, these avid skiers are like, they want to date me. And when they find out that I don't really ski that much anymore, they, they get angry and they're like, well, you know, what's, what's wrong with you? And actually, even when I announced my uh, retirement and I sent an email out to people about how I'm not going to be a professional skier anymore and I might not even ski, the kickback from that was people were furious. And I, I was so taken aback by that because it's their lives. And, and I had the dream life. I had the dream of what everybody wants. I could travel all over the world and ski for free and do have any kind of skiing experience that I want and I'd get paid for it. And it's like, oh my gosh, it's such a, the romantic ideal. But with any profession, of course, there's a good side to it and there's also a downside to it. And um, the downside to it was that I experienced a lot of near-death experiences. I watched friends die, a lot of injuries. I watched a lot of friends get severely crippled. And once you turn your passion into your profession, you know, you lose something for it. When I go skiing, it's really hard for me to be up at Snowbird or whatnot and, and not have people see me in capital letters. And it's hard not to then think, okay, I'm back working, you know, like skiing feels like work to me. And I love my work, but I'm just was ready to move on. And I'm, I know I've gone off on like five different tangents, but. <laughs> <laughs> Let me bring you back to earth with this little memory. I used to host a little party during the SIA show in Las Vegas called Lycra Lace and Leather. And you earned the only exemption ever issued by the pontiff for attending without lycra lace or leather because of your preference for the vinyl go-go boot <laughs> as an essential part of any wardrobe. I believe you attended, did you not? 
Oh, yes. I attended several of your parties. I thought you did. I thought you did. Do you have any memories of those little evenings? I remember meeting women in particular at those events. I remember Christy. I forget her last name. Christy Brown. Yep. And I just fell in love with her. You know, in a, in a competitive sport, women are, can be really catty. And there were definitely women that I was skiing with, and two in particular that were just so mean and so catty. And then we go to your leather lace events in Vegas, and I would just meet women in the industry that maybe I didn't have a way to meet otherwise besides the party that I just fell in love with. I made a lot of really good friends at your parties. We crossed paths at that era another time when you came out to the snow country ski test and you couldn't ski with us because you were so beat up. You were in such pain you couldn't participate. You remember that sad moment? No, I don't. No, you came all the way out to ski test, but you were injured. You were, I think it was knee that was just hurt too much and you actually couldn't, couldn't play with us. Yeah, I had four ACL reconstructions in three years in between... Uh, 91 and 93. I only had two injuries though. And my, my surgery just kept failing because the surgeon was putting in a cadaver ligament and my body was rejecting the tissue. I mean, think about this. I had four ACL reconstructive surgeries in three years and I never missed a ski season. Is there anything left in there? That time of year was the beginning of my ski career. So all of my and again, I only had two knee injuries and my knee injuries were not that bad. One of them was on a trampoline. And one of them, I was just standing still on top of a mogul and somebody did something funny. They did a dump shoot off of a jump where, you know, a skier like puts his skis up like he's taking a poop and puts his oh. hand in his legs. And anyway, and I just, I was standing on this mogul and I threw my head back and laughed and my ski went forward like two inches and my knee went pop. Wow. Usually when you think of professional big mountain skiers and they have knee injuries, you think it's some sort of horrendous crash or like epic failure. But both of my knee injuries didn't come from that one. Like I said, was training aerials on a trampoline, but then I had these surgery failures. So my knee problems came at the start of my ski career, but I went on to ski professionally till 2003 and it was over by 1993. So I had 10 years of being a you know professional skier, most of that time being the best in the world. So I always tell people that are going through knee injuries that, look, all of my knee problems happened before my career. And that makes them happy to realize that there is life after knee surgery. And to this day, like right now, I don't have any pain in my knees. I've had nine surgeries. I don't have any pain in my knees. Well, that's a good thing, isn't it? Yeah. Yeah. Before I delve into special areas of interest in your current activity, is it the Art of Fear Camps? Is that the current title? Yes, I run Art of Fear Ski Camps, and I run Art of Fear Camps in the summertime with hiking. Was Ski to Live a previous incarnation of the same program? Yes, and I rebranded because what I facilitate regarding fear is so powerful that I wanted to make sure that that was the the start of what we explored in the camps. And yeah, they're super popular. I, If I launch a new camp, it's usually sold out within two, three weeks at the most. Where are they? How long do they run at each location? And what do you do when you're there? I only run them at Alta, Utah. 
and that's the home for them, has the right vibe for the camps. And plus, I'm able to run them without using ski instructors. And I want to take ski instruction or technical lessons out of the equation. They run three nights and two days, two ski days, and we have evening sessions. And we start with helping people have a healthy flowing relationship with fear rather than a resistant or repressive relationship, which causes it to persist. Basically, there's three types of people that come to the camp. They're the ones who struggle with fear issues or anxiety issues, either in their lives or in their skiing. That's about a third of the campers. A third of the campers come just because they want to improve their skiing and they know that mindset training is the best way to do that. We all say that mindset is 90% of the game with sports and the other 10% is mindset also. <laughs> so, <laughs> and then a third of the campers come just because they're curious because the camps have a really great reputation and they just want to see what all the buzz is. In some of your introductory materials, which is on your website, which is called? KristenOlmer.com. Perfect. In some of the introductory materials on KristenOlmer.com, you establish right away the primacy of words and the importance of word choice. As a writer, you can just imagine how I glow inside when when I hear this. How does word choice begin to change one's relationship with fear? Oh my gosh, that's such a beautiful question. In order to understand why that's important, let's back up a little bit and why fear, aka anxiety, like nobody calls it fear anymore. We are all calling it anxiety has come to be such a problem in our lives. And to understand this, see fear as a person that is maybe a roommate um, who lives in your body, who's just there all the time. Most of us are in denial of the fact that fear is there all the time. I mean, there's so much that I could say about that. I'll just make it simple though. So fear is a roommate that's there all the time. And it doesn't even matter if you're a skier or not a skier, or if you take risks or you don't take risks, it's just going to be there all the time. And most of the current language in our society that we have around fear is derogatory language. Like we want to conquer and overcome it, which suggests a war or fighting it. We try to control it. We try to let it go or rationalize it away. We say things like it's not even real, false evidence appearing real. When we say to mommy and daddy, when we're kids that we're afraid, mommy and daddy say there's nothing to be afraid of, which is fear shaming. Of course, there's things to be afraid of. But it's like we grow up believing that it's not supposed to be there. It's a sign of personal weakness. It's something to be embarrassed about. It's a problem to be solved. So back to having this roommate, if you see your roommate as all of these things and you're trying to fight them, you're going to live a very, very difficult life. And the first way to turn that relationship around with that roommate called fear is to apologize like, oh, geez, I'm so sorry. I've been such a jerk, right? Because when you treat fear wrong, you do not want to pick a fight with fear, right? It's old, it's established, it has a strong personality, and it will fight back. I find it very interesting that you've chosen language that personifies fear, uh, giving it motives and means of its own. Yes, yes. And it's with us from birth till death. I think the easiest way to understand why changing your language around fear is important is to see it as a person. Because if you're living with a person and you're going to be living with them from birth till death and they're with you every single moment of every single day, you might want to have a good relationship with them versus a combative relationship with them. 
Is that what you mean by being the term being in flow with your fear? Yes. So there's resistance and resistance leads to a lot of suffering. And I mean, next thing you know, you've given fear magical powers. If you're in resistance to it, you kink the hose on the flow of it in your body. You're now devoting your life to picking a war with the nature of life itself, a war with your own body. It's just a really, really bad idea to not be in flow with fear or have a war against fear. So conversely, if you do the exact opposite, and it starts with changing your language and start talking about fear in an inclusion way, like it's not a problem to be solved. It's a resource to be tapped into. I'm not here to conquer and overcome my fear. I'm here to merge with and do a dance with my fear. It's not false evidence appearing real. It is real. It's here right now, and it's here to help me be better. Fear is only a good thing. It's only a good thing. Just by having that positive outlook reflected in your language just ends anxiety disorders, ends depression, ends PTSD, ends insomnia, helps people. Just through word choice and through the power of those words. Yes, it is the most important thing you can do to turn your relationship with fear around is start talking about it in a positive way. You note that fear seems to flow in and out of us, and not seems to, but has been measured as flowing in and out of us in 10 to 90 second long waves. Is fear something we can learn to embrace so that it passes through us without leaving wreckage behind? Is that a constructive way to think about it? Yes, exactly. Now, taking it back, because Jackson, your audience are skiers, right? So I'm talking to you, listener, and you're a skier. And you may have kids that are like this, but if you feel fearless or if your kids look fearless, nobody is fearless. It's not only impossible, but it's undesirable. What's actually going on is your child or you enjoy feeling fear. And when you enjoy feeling fear, it doesn't show up as being scared. It shows up as excitement or presence, focus, aliveness. Stephen Kotler says, if there's fear involved, flow comes for free. He wrote Stealing Fire and The Art of Impossible. He's a best-selling author. And I, I corrected him, though. I said, no, if you have fear and you have intimacy with it, then flow comes for free. And so with skiing... You know, if there was no fear, then nobody would buy lift tickets. Like the whole reason why we go skiing is to feel fear, to step out of our comfort zone and to go a little bit faster or to try something new. The romantic ideal is not to be fearless in skiing. The romantic ideal is to be willing to feel fear and even enjoy feeling fear. That's kind of the first part. Is fear part of the process of being present? I think that if you like risk-taking, like let's say if your core wound is comfort and security, then you're not going to want to ski. You're not going to want to take risks. And you can still have presence or present moments if your core value is comfort or security. But if your core value is more like adventure or aliveness, then yeah, you had a drop of fear to your life. If you're bored and you go out and do something that scares you, it's going to be memorable. It's going to be fun. Fear is fun. And it's going to also take you into a flow state, which is, I mean, I used to think that, oh my gosh, I love skiing so much, but actually it was 
doing scary things and the intimacy with the fear that took me into a flow state and an altered state, we call it the zone, which is slightly different. It was that that I was addicted to and not the skiing. Skiing was just the medium or the catalyst by which I was able to access those states of presence and awareness. We do uh, refer to skiing, however, as an addiction, even we don't mean it clinically, but certainly when we're selling skis to the customer, we're thinking in the back of our mind, thank God this sport is addictive because there's no snow on the ground and people are still coming in and buying skis because it's a narcotic for them. You would suggest that that's part of the big ball of relationships with the sport is yes, the fear, it, fear it, angle. Definitely. It depends on your core value, though. Like back to the analogy of, or not even analogy, but if you're into excitement and adventure, then you want to have fear as part of the equation out there while skiing. But if you're into comfort and security, then you don't necessarily need to have fear as part of the equation. But just by virtue of the fact that you take up skiing in the first place, that shows me that you're willing to feel fear, that you enjoy it on some level, that you're willing to do this dangerous sport. We like to see it as a hobby or an activity, but the fact of the matter is it's a very dangerous sport. It requires a lot of athleticism and it requires a willingness to feel fear. For some people, you really fast track towards getting to a present flow state is by having fear involved. And that's why we look at extreme sports. And it's like these athletes, they have to be in the zone. They have to be in a flow state or else they're going to die. You can't fail or you're going to either get seriously injured or you're going to die. And the fear is the very thing. And intimacy with fear is the very thing that makes sure that you are in the present state and just really hyper-focused on what you're doing. And I guess I can summarize it by saying this. Dogen Zenji is a very famous Zen master that lived about 900 years ago. And he's famous for saying, enlightenment is intimacy with all things. Now, nobody uses the word enlightenment anymore. We've replaced it with the word flow. In today's modern world, let's call the quote, flow is intimacy with all things. Can you have intimacy, not just with the mountain, not just with the snow, not just with the wind or whatever it is, but can you also have intimacy with the fear that you're experiencing? That is the very thing that takes you into a flow state that just makes you feel so good. When we speak about the relationship between us and fear, we talk about skiing. Sometimes we just think, oh, it's the fear of injury. But your teaching is saying, well, it's not just the fact that you could get hurt skiing. That's the, Yes, that, that may be one of the drivers of the fear. But how you manage fear globally in your life, with your skis are on or your skis are off, is going to be linked to how much you feel it and in terms of anxiety in your daily life, how much you feel depressed about conditions around you, whether it affects your sleep or whether it induces other escapists or masking behaviors. Fear isn't just, I might fall down. <laughs> fear triggers all these other non-ski related trauma. Well, let's talk about this in terms of fear of injury with skiing. Even before you ever have your first injury, skiing or otherwise, you know, you're going to have on some level fear of injury, but let's say you've now had a ski injury and then you try to go back to skiing and I see it again and again, somebody just becomes pickled in that fear of injury. I mean, this is such a huge conversation. I'll just narrow it down to one specific point though. What the fear of injury affords you is 
you bring your A game so as not to get injured again. <laughs> right? Right, right. So fear is a really, really good thing. It prevents injury. And if you're listening to it, it gets to be irrational for some people. And all of a sudden, they're half the skier they used to be, and they, they're like having a panic attack out there, and they don't even want to ski anymore. What is that? Well, if you've gone through an injury, or even if you've not gone through an injury, fear is like water flowing through your body to keep you on, you know, on point and sharp. It can help you fight or flight or freeze. So let's say you get to the top of a steep mogul run. It could cause you to freeze, to just gather more information, like ask somebody like, okay, is this, what's it like around the corner there? Does it get icy? You know, does this cliff out? Like just asking questions is freeze, you know, like deer in the headlights. They, they just don't want to move because they don't know what's going on. So just gathering more information. And then there's also flee, like I'm going to not ski this. I'm not in the mood for fear right now. Like, no which is a very wise, intuitive choice, or it can help you fight. Like I'm going to bring my A game to skiing this and be super present and aware because it's way out of my comfort zone and it's icy. And next thing you know, you're in that higher altered state that I was talking about. Now, here's the thing though. There's fear if you ski the icy moguls and there's also fear if you don't ski the icy moguls. What does that mean about who I am as a person? And now we're back to core values. If you really see yourself as an adventurous person who takes risks, you're going to have more fear over not skiing the steep icy moguls than you're going to have fear of skiing the steep icy moguls. So there's a lot that goes on for people standing at the top of something like this. And if you are in flow with your fear, you will make healthy on point decisions based on your age, core values, your fitness level, if your injury is recovered or not, and you will take appropriate action, either to ski it and bring your A-game or to walk away or gather more information. Now, here's the thing. A lot of people are then crippled by their fear afterwards, mostly because they don't know how to be in flow with it. Do you have any questions about what I just outlined with the steep icy moguls though? Because the next point I'm going to make is an even bigger point and it goes on for a little bit and I want to just pause. No, I'm I'm with you, honey. You're doing great. I'm. <laughs> I don't mean honey is dismissive. I mean it as an term of endearment. <laughs> I, I'm absolutely with you. I'm in trance, so I would keep rolling. Okay. I mean, I get so excited about this fear stuff, and I realized that my ski career, Jackson, was just an education and training for what uh, um, I've put together regarding fear and how to help people with their emotional issues, not just while skiing, but in life in general anxiety disorders, depression, PTSD, like my ski career was fun and frivolous. And I had a huge ego trip going. I made a bunch of money. I was famous. It was super fun, but it's all I realized just an education to figure out all that I figured out and help me do what I do for a living. Now, taking it back into skiing, we go through an injury. It's scary. And you deal with a whole bunch of emotions. Maybe you're angry at yourself or somebody else that hit you. You're sad about what's been lost. You're afraid. And you don't even need to know what you're angry, sad, or have fear about. We don't need to figure that out. Just know that you have a class six river of emotion going through your body if you've gone through an injury. So what you do with those emotions is very, very important. You know, I was in a panel discussion recently on what to do if you're injured and how to have the best recovery. And the poor woman that spoke before me, she said, well, it's really, really important to keep a positive attitude. And then I was handed the microphone next and I said, I completely disagree. I 
think that it's important that you feel whatever it is that you're feeling. And don't try to make lemonade out of lemons. Like if you're upset, be upset. I had a friend who I saw on Facebook. He was in Alaska and he really had a bad injury, blew his knee out. I think he tib fib fracture too. And they got him down off the mountain. And within 20 minutes of the injury happening, he posted on Facebook, him sitting in the snow with a thumbs up sign saying, I just broke my leg and definitely hurt my knee, but I'm going to come back better than ever. And I looked at that photo and I'm like, that poor bastard, right? He is going to be so stuck. His surgery isn't going to work out. He's probably going to have to have multiple surgeries. This is going to be a five, 10 year ordeal. He's never going to be the same again. Just because of that one Facebook post, because you got to allow yourself to be upset, right? You've got to allow yourself to be angry and sad and bummed out and afraid. And what does this mean? I think it's really important to just let whatever emotions are there be. And that's what it means to be in flow with your fear and other emotions. It's like their class six raging river going through his body. And if you kink the hose and try to replace it with something more positive or calm or joy or positivity or whatever, you've just spiritually bypassed the river of difficult emotions and you kink the hose. And next thing you know, those emotions get stuck in your body like water trapped in a closed system. It's like I'm closed off to any of these emotions. So now they're stuck in your body in that closed system and they start to just mess up your life in up to 8 billion ways. That's how many people are alive. So it could show up in 8 billion different ways. But the most common ones I see having a kinked toes showing up as you now get kind of stuck with a recirculating, exacerbated version of that emotion going round and round in your system in the form of an anxiety disorder or eventually it explodes out the cracks and turns into a panic attack or that trapped. The second way I I see this causing problems that's most popular is like trapped water tends to do. It'll flood into any available space. In this case, your fear will flood into your mind, into your thoughts. Like it's just supposed to be in your body. It's proven by science that if you're in flow with it, it's just in your body as a sensation But if you kink the hose, it will flood into your thoughts. And next thing you know, you have fearful thoughts or fears with an S or insomnia. If you're really good at blocking out your fear during the day, hose is kinked. Well, it floods into your system and into your thoughts in the middle of the night when your guard is dropped, when you're trying to sleep. And next thing you know, you have insomnia. You're not a good sleeper. That trapped fear in that kinked hose can then terrorize your life is the most interesting one. It'll show up redirected in other ways that don't even seem like fear at all. If fear feels powerless to you, you want nothing to do with it. Well, you have to feel something. So you feel anger instead or blame or excessive sadness and you get depressed. So you really don't want to kink the hose on your flow of emotions when you're just had an injury, certainly, but also while you're going through the recovery of the injury. And as long as you're in flow with all of them, next season will roll around and you'll be fine. How do you intervene with the bad responses? How do you check them or recognize them and steer them in a different direction? Well, you come to my camp. (laughs) (laughs) You got that, ladies and gentlemen? KristenUlmer.com. You can find Uh, out about the camp. Right. Like if somebody has gone through an injury and they've just never been the same again out there on the mountain, what they learn at camp is that, okay, I've kinked the hose and now it's recirculating round and round and it's, you know, in my head and it's in my body and I just can't get past this. 
well, I come to camp and I get them back. And fl- I, first of all, I broker a conversation between them and their fear. Find out what their unique stuck place is. Because it's, it's not one size fits all. Like everybody's different. Some people ignore fear. Some people avoid feeling fear. Some people try to understand intellectually the fear as a way to not have to feel it. Some try to rationalize it away. These are all really bad advice on what to do about fear. And, it'll, you know, whatever you resist persists, it's just not going to work. This is what people teach, though. This is what self-help gurus and even sports psychologists, probably ski instructors, teach that you need to get that out of your mind and think positive thoughts and you need to let it go and replace it with, I got this. And all of that is bad advice. So what I do is the exact opposite is help you have a conversation with that person that's now maybe in your head and just see what's gone wrong. And then what do we do to to turn this relationship with fear around is also not one size fits all. It's different for everyone. And so we explore that at the camp. And then I take people through a journey of the different levels and how to deal with fear from worst to best. Like the worst way is resistance. And then the second level is noticing your fear, just even being willing to notice where it is in your body. Third level is acceptance of it. It's normal and natural. Fourth level is learning how to feel it and dealing with it emotionally instead of intellectually or ignoring it or avoiding it. And then the fourth level is intimacy or doing a dance with it. It's just remarkable what happens when we get to the fifth level. Like people skiing improves probably 40% just with that one shift. And then I give them tips on how to make that permanent. Sounds brilliant. If I could sit down on the therapist's couch (laughs) for a minute, I'm sure your campers come to you to help cope with fear that's incited by all sorts of different things. I have a very specific ski-related phobia that your methods might help with, and it might help my dear listeners to hear. I occasionally become terrified of being on a ski lift, any lift, but particularly chairlifts that are high above the ground. Is that sort of internal terror something your teachings could help me deal with better? The fear doesn't seem to want to pass through me. It acts more like it wants to move in. It's interesting you brought that up because, I mean, I made a living jumping off of cliffs, right? Yes. And I did some things right by fear and some things wrong by fear. I won't go into detail about what my unique relationship is with fear because we'll be here all day. I just went through a really painful divorce And it was also really hard on me because I had a lot of responsibility dumped on me. And and I also have a lot of fear from childhood. You don't really need to know where it comes from. And your fear of heights, we'll call it, on the chairlift may seem like one thing, you know, fear of heights, but it's really actually something else. It's one of two things or probably a combination of both. And I actually recently had fear of heights And it was showing up for me on a chairlift. And I actually addressed this in my last ski camp in myself personally on the chairlift privately. So fear of heights is one of two things on the chairlift. First of all, you actually are afraid that there's a part of you that wants to jump. Right. So it's like your right hand is holding onto the chair and that's the, no, I'm not going to jump hand. And then the other, there's a part of you that's like, do it, do it, right? You know, you want to do it. And uh, like you're, it's like this insane part of you wants to jump. So that's the first part. Now that's, that's an irrational behavior. And then it leads to irrational fear. And what that usually is, is a redirected fear 
from some area in your life that has nothing to do with the heights. So when I was exploring my own fear of heights on the chairlift at this last ski camp, I just checked in on what it is. And it was just still residual fear that I hadn't been in flow with or hadn't dealt with from my very painful divorce that was just showing up, trying to get my attention with the fear of heights. And so what I did was I, I saw that it was redirected and I just spend some quality time feeling my fear without any agenda to get rid of it. And I did this while on the chairlift and it took me about a minute to just really have that intimacy with my fear. And then the fear of heights went away and has it come back. I guess the takeaway is if you have fear of heights on the chairlift, that is some other fear somewhere else in your life that you're not dealing with that's trying to get your attention on the chairlift because your guard has dropped. You're there having fun. You're skiing and the sun is out. You know, maybe it's a powder day. It's like, okay, this is an opportunity to get Jackson's attention. And if you turn towards the fear and learn how to just feel it and spend some quality time with it, it's kind of like a child that's upset and trying to get your attention and just screaming, right? You turn towards it and you give it your complete love and undivided attention and it just calms right down like children tend to do and then runs out of things to say. Hmm, That's brilliant advice. What's the title of your book and where can people get it? It's The Art of Fear, Why Conquering Fear Won't Work and What to Do Instead. You can get it on any online resource, Amazon, for example. And please, if you get it, write me a review. I've been told by my publisher that I have to start asking people to write me reviews. It's the Bible on fear. 10% of the book is spent talking about my own relationship with fear during my ski career. Especially skiers can learn a lot from the book on how to relate to fear during skiing. Even though I wrote the book for people that struggle with anxiety disorders or depression or irrational fears and on and on, I think that skiers in particular will find it extremely useful for skiing. Let's talk about you finally. As as Kristen, the athlete, as the athlete that you walked away from in 2003, peel back the veil of time When were you, quote unquote, discovered and who was it who first said, hey, you've got to come see this gal? I grew up in New Hampshire. I was just skiing to hang out with my girlfriends and in the lodge. We didn't ski that much. And then right around age 15, I started becoming obsessed with skiing. But I skied in jeans until I was 20 years old, which is kind of an East Coast 80s, 90s thing, which is another way of saying I wasn't very committed to the sport. I even did my first ski season at Snowbird back when we used to get a ton of powder in jeans. So skiing 100 days a year in jeans. By the age of 23, so a mere three years later, I made it on the U.S. ski team for moguls and I was considered the best woman Big Mountain Extreme, we were called then, skier in the world. And so in those three years, I had never had any training. In fact, besides a couple of ski lessons in second grade, I'd never had any ski school lessons either. So I am the poster child for it's all mental. As for how I got recognized, I mean, the the U.S. ski team thing, you get recognized by winning competitions, obviously. And I actually didn't even have a goal to get on the U.S. ski team. I just wanted to hang out with my friends and they were skiing in mogul competitions. So I tagged along and Next thing you know, I'm on the U.S. ski team for moguls, which is crazy because, you know, I was competing against girls that have been groomed their whole lives to get on the U.S. ski team for moguls. That was not the right 
place for me though. I think you're asking more about the big mountain extreme skiing, which is more what I'm known for. Right around the same time that I was making it on the US ski team for moguls, I had talked this cinematographer, Eric Perlman, into auditioning my skiing for his upcoming movie. And I went out to Squaw Valley, went up to the Palisades, and all these hotshot famous movie skiers were jumping off these cliffs like Scott Schmidt, who I know you interviewed recently. And I realized if I wanted to get in his movie, I needed to jump off one of these cliffs and throw the trick of the day, which was a back scratcher. I had never jumped off a cliff before. I'd only done kicker air in the moguls. And I'd never thrown a back scratcher before, which is harder to do than you realize, right? And I picked a cliff that looked to be about 20, 25 feet, called, I think, the box on the Palisades. Uh And shouted three, two, one, cameras rolling, jumped off the cliff, did a back scratcher, landed it, skied away, hiked up, did two more. And then that was the end of the film shoot. And nobody had ever seen a girl do anything like this back then. In fact, back then, it was only these guys. This is like in 1989, 1990, I think. These guys that were there were pretty much the only guys doing this on the planet. I mean, there were a few rogue guys prior to that jumping off cliffs. You know, you see footage of them, but not very many. And they were making this popular they they were blown away. And I, I didn't know. I just thought, well, that's what you do to get in the movie. I, I didn't see myself as a woman. I saw myself as just one of the guys. And th- that's what they were doing. And I was doing what they were doing, maybe a little bit worse than they were doing it. And, and next thing you know, I'm super famous, like overnight. Everybody knew my name in Squaw Valley. And a week later, everybody in the ski industry knew my name. And a, three weeks later, every single ski magazine was writing an article about me. And I was fully sponsored. And <laughs> the rest is history. I've always considered you more than just a skier, even in the alpine domain, never mind more than just a skier because you're also an author and lecturer and so on. But within our domain, I would call you an alpinist, not a skier. In other words, you understand that in extreme conditions, if you plan to ski down it, you're first going to have to climb up it. Would you consider that's a fair estimation of who you were as a skier, more than just a skier, but someone who was actually more built into the fabric of the mountain, not just a lift rider? Well, the wonderful thing about free skiing is that there's complete freedom. And I feel like I had four different things that I got really good at in skiing. There's the moguls, of course, that gave me a really quick reflex training and and also air sense. Like I was really good in the air. I mean, sometimes I'd be so out of control and I'd throw an air to get back in control. So then there was also the cliff jumping. You know, I was really into cliff jumping. The majority of my career on cinema was just me jumping off cliffs, jumping off cliffs, which a lot of girls won't do even today. We're starting to see more of it, but certainly back then. And I would stick to landing and I'd do cool tricks. And I think that's really what separated me from most girls back then. Because there are a lot of really good girl skiers, but they couldn't, if they would jump, they'd crash. Or they wouldn't do cool tricks. I would not only, I would do cool tricks and I would stick the landing. The third thing is that I would start to climb. I got really good at rock climbing and ice climbing. Like I led ice climbing, which is no small thing. It's called the sharp end. And I got to be like a mid to high 512 rock climber. And so then I would climb the mountains that I was going to ski and I would do ski mountaineering. Now that stuff doesn't make for good cinema though. It's very slow. It's very meticulous. Like I did the first female ski descent of the Grand Teton 
And I took probably one turn per 30 seconds, maybe. And the drill would be like, it's really steep, kind of just bop up and down and just try to get up the nerve and, you know, take a single turn, land on my uphill ski, and then get caught in an avalanche and just whoo, sew my mind back on and just kind of get my shit back together. And then I'd take the next turn 30 seconds later. And it was like that the whole way down. It doesn't make for interesting cinema. When you ski, you fall, you die descents, especially if the conditions are bad. And then there's just the Alaska scene where a helicopter takes you up and you just charge hard down these big mountains. And you may catch air, you may not. That's kind of the fourth part uh, or fourth element that I got really good at. And of course, my ski career though happened before fat skis. Like my, almost all my movies were filmed on skinny skis. In fact, all of them were filmed on skinny skis. I think the last movie I filmed, I was on tweeners, like somewhere in between skinny and fat skis. So my only bummer is that I never got to film a movie on fat skis because on fat skis, it's just so much easier to land the airs. Like we had to land a lot of our airs on our hips or because you just you'd go to the bottom of the snow and it's just like, it's really hard to ski away from something like that when you're going three feet or two feet into the powder. And how do you keep going? I mean, it's just so hard to, it's violent and it's really hard to ski super fast. Doug Coombs, for example, was considered one of the best skiers that ever lived. But if you look at his old footage, he's just taking a lot of little turns, turn, 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 turn down in Alaska. And now you look at guys and they're just taking big GS turns And it's not that they're better than Doug or bigger progression. It's just that they have different equipment and you're skiing on the top of the snow instead of in the snow. So you can do that. So I never got a chance to film a movie on top of the snow. I only filmed my movies in the snow. Anyway. (laughs) Do you have a favorite ski flick? I think that the, the last footage that I shot towards the end of my career, like with TGR, Teton Gravity Research, it's one sequence where I did a big front flip off of a cliff and I was in my mid thirties at that point. And I had a lot of experience and the conditions were right. And I was on the tweener skis that I mentioned. And, and I also wasn't dealing with my knees anymore. That was in the past. So I would say that's my favorite, but I, I mean, I made 22, 24 ski movies. I know. I was wondering what, if you could pick a favorite out of, <laughs> out of that pile. Is there any particular title that boosted your film career? Or you mentioned earlier that it sort of blew up overnight, film or no film. Being a part of the North Face Extreme team definitely was what set me on the trajectory that I went on. I would say that when you're a professional athlete in a a sport that's not based on race results and it's based on reputation, you want to have the perfect storm of a lot of different things. And really, it, it comes down to reputation. Everything that I filmed, all the photos, all the articles that were written about me just added to my reputation, which added to the opportunities that I was given to then become a better and better skier. I'm actually about to go heli skiing in Alaska. I invite anybody that's listening who is an expert skier or snowboarder to reach out to me, come heli skiing with me in Alaska. I go every spring for two weeks. And I don't want to go alone. It's not a camp or anything. I just go. So I go up there and I have spent a year and a half of my life heli skiing in Alaska. And even if you're the best skier at Tahoe or Jackson Hole or, you know, and you're not a professional skier, the fact that you haven't been to Alaska and you haven't logged a lot of runs and miles up in Alaska 
you're not at the next level of what's possible. And so I had just opportunity after opportunity after opportunity to go heli skiing in Alaska during my ski career and go to Chamonix, France. I just developed such a bigger, bigger, bigger bag of tricks that you can get at any one ski resort because of a whole bunch of things that I was doing to enhance my reputation, including sex appeal cells by being outrageous, by being funny, by being opinionated, by having interesting things to say in the interviews, by selling the sexy, fun, wild side of skiing. All of this contributed and writing my own articles contributed to me getting more opportunities to go and ski terrain that some local hotshot would never be able to get. And so I just kind of kept leaving the pack behind, which is why I was considered the best in the world for so long. 12 years is a long time. Just by opportunities alone and experience, I was able to just stay on top for so long. Every year there'd be some girl, maybe at Whistler or Crested Butte, who was nipping at my heels, like, okay, they're getting some attention. They're really, really good. But then they'd go to Alaska and they'd freak out or they'd get seriously injured their first day there, or they maybe they didn't want to call sponsors because they considered that quote selling out, or there would always be something that would prevent them from being given the opportunities to go to the next level. So that's why I just maintained my status for so long. As the most badass big mountain woman skier of your generation, do you take some pride in the current generation of female big mountain competitors and what they're able to do? Yes, I am actually so relieved because when I was a professional skier for 12 years, I was considered the best and I was over it. Jackson, I was so ready to move on, you know, I was exhausted. I, I was both having intimacy with my fear, but I was also ignoring it. But I didn't feel like I could retire until somebody came along that I thought was impressive enough that I could pass the baton to and feel good about it. And it was really hard for years, even after I retired, I'd look at ski movies and I'd be like, oh, really? And now I look at ski movies and I'm like, yes, like I'm so excited. I'm so just blown away by the level of women skiing now. And it's taken me a while to get to that point. And keep in mind, there were, I don't want to be disrespectful to any woman in my generation or after my generation, but let me just tell you a story. So I was always the best, the best, best, right? And how my reign of terror ended was in 2002, I get a phone call from Outside Magazine and they said, we are doing a story on the best in the world at their respective sports in a whole bunch of genres like rock climbing and paragliding or what have you. And we're going to cover the best woman, big mountain extreme skier in the world. I'm like, okay. And I'm used to getting phone calls like this. And they said, well, we're calling you because we want to tell you it's not you. (laughs) (laughs) You want to know what my reaction was or what I genuinely felt? Relief. Relief and thrilled. But curiosity, I'm like, okay. And they said, we're, we're calling you because we want to see how you feel about this. And we also want to interview you about the woman that we picked. And I said, well, who did you pick? And they picked Francine Morallon. She's a Swiss woman. And I said, absolutely. She's brilliant. Now, she didn't catch air, which, you know, is part of the deal. You, she did not have that air sense. But as far as skiing... Absolutely. She was a better skier than me. She was super aggressive and very hungry. 
I said, but here's the thing. Francine will either be crippled or dead within a year, is what I said. I don't even remember if they put it in the article, but I don't think they did. And sure enough, that's what happened. She was trying to learn air. And when you learn air, if you're a professional skier, you practice into powder, you practice on a water park, you start small. Like she was just trying to go from, and of course I did that off in the Palisades <laughs> back with their Eric Perlman days, but it was into powder at least. I mean, Francine just was in her early thirties and trying to learn air in the terrain parks. And she went off one of these big jumps and tried to throw a backflip without training it on a trampoline, without training it with a spotter, nothing on a water ramp. She just decided to go for it and see if it worked out. And she broke her neck and was paralyzed from the waist down for four days. Thank God it was only for four days. And then she slowly made a recovery, but she quit. And that was the end of her ski career. So it's a game and you have to play it. You have to be very prudent about how you play this game if you're going to be a big mountain skier. You have to see it like a business. I would only take big risks if there was a camera there or if there was some incentive that was going to enhance my reputation because it's a reputation-based career. I wouldn't do anything risky. Well, I would ski (laughs) with the exception of you fall, you die descents. But I certainly wouldn't jump off cliffs unless there was some sort of professional payoff for it. I jumped off plenty of cliffs. I didn't need to jump off more because, you know, that shit hurts, right? (laughs) (laughs) So that's probably why I had so few injuries compared to my peers. Kristen, I want to thank you so much for spending not just your time, but your very deep and profound thoughts with us today. You're a remarkable woman. You're a credit to skiing, and we're glad we have you. It has been an honor and a privilege. I think skiing is an amazing sport, and the ski industry treated me right. Deep respect to you, Jackson. You are a force of nature and one of my favorite people from the ski industry. I'm glad you're doing a podcast. Thank you so much, Kristen. I am, too, for no other reason than I got a great chance to talk to you for an hour. Dear listeners, we've reached the end of this compelling episode of Real Skiers with Jackson Hogan. I hope you enjoyed my visit with the remarkable Kristen Ulmer. This has been Jackson Hogan. Thanks for listening.